But make no mistake about it, the Fed is is concerned about inflation becoming more durable, especially as it starts to see more of it coming through on the demand side. And they feel like they need to raise rates aggressively in order to tamp that down. That raises an interesting question. Can you actually see some signs of the Fed's policies already having an impact? And the answer to this is yes, certainly in some of the more interest rate sensitive parts of the economy. Welcome to another episode of TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council. From deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. It's no secret that inflation, high interest rates, and the looming threat of recession are top of mind right now for business leaders and economists alike. Luckily, we've got both on today's CRE Executive Roundtable. You'll hear from Ryan Severino, the chief economist for JLL and a professor at Columbia University and New York University, as well as some of the top commercial real estate executives in the DFW area. Before we get into it, please subscribe to the show wherever you download podcasts, and make sure you're following us on social media and YouTube for the latest news, insights, and content from around the Real Estate Council. Now, here's JLL's Ryan Severino and our CRE Executive Roundtable right here on TrackCast. Awesome. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks uh, for being with us. So glad you're here. I'm Kim Butler with Hall Group, and I'm this year's chair of the Real Estate Council. And we are fortunate to have Ron Severino with us. He is the chief economist for JLL. And he's also a professor at adjunct professor at Columbia and NYU. So uh, before he's had this role since 2016. And prior to this, he was in um, economic and research roles at Reese, MetLife, Starwood, and Prudential. Uh, when we talked last week, Ryan said that he felt like he had found the perfect fit in the commercial real estate industry. Obviously, he has stayed in it for a long, long time, but that in his words, it allows him to fulfill his nerdy side with what he uh, does in terms of research and data analytics, but it also helps him fulfill his people side. Uh, he is very much a people person, and we all know commercial real estate is all about relationships. So uh, he feels that it is the perfect match. Um, I want to thank Trey Morseback, who's on the call. He's also with JLL, uh, but Trey is going to be our chair next year for Trek. And thank you, Trey, for arranging to have Ryan speak with us this morning. Um, the format this morning is that Ryan will speak 25 minutes, plus or minus, and then we will open it up for questions and discussion. And I have shared with him that this group is not shy on questions or discussions, so I'm expecting you all not to let me down. So without further ado, Ryan, the floor is yours. Well, thanks, uh, everyone, for having me. It's, uh, I would tell you that it's an interesting time to be talking about the economy, but I would tell you it's always an interesting time to be talking about the economy. And um, you could see I'm, I'm using a somewhat incendiary subtitle of this presentation, but I, I think it's still, it's still relevant given where we are in the cycle, this uh, idea of inflation versus interest rates being the economic battle of our time. Let me show you the agenda that I want to discuss with everyone. I will spend some time talking about the changing shape of inflation. I think uh, it has really changed over the course of the year. And I think that's really relevant to our discussion 
Uh, and the second part in terms of responses, what I specifically mean is responses from the Fed and how I think they're going to, are reacting, are going to react, and then how it's, uh, how it's actually manifesting itself in the economy and, and will likely to continue to do so. Uh, not to be a, a shameless promotional plug for our industry, but I will talk very briefly why I think commercial real estate is still in a favorable position given everything that's going on. And then I will just briefly discuss risks and surprises and then uh, open it up for any questions. First, this idea of the changing shape of inflation. I think as a lot of people know that, that we've had some serious disruptions over the last couple of years. And, and most people think that it really started on the supply side. And that's certainly true, but it didn't end there. This is, uh, I, I think, the most succinct way that I can demonstrate that. This is an index that was created by the New York Fed. And it's really an amalgam of, of different individual metrics designed to give you one comprehensive view of the supply side of the economy. The only thing that you need to understand looking at this is that when the line is higher, it means the supply side of the economy is more disrupted. When the line is lower, it means that it's less disrupted. And you could see that we've gone through some pretty significant disruptions over the last couple of years. But the good news is you're starting to see significant, we've really seen over the course of this year, significant improvements in the supply side of the economy. That's not to say that there are not disruptions lurking out there and that it's not having an impact on, on inflation and the economy. But I would, I would objectively say that the supply side of the economy is in a far healthier position than it was uh, earlier this year, even, even late last year. So the supply side is actually improving over time. On the other side of the economy, the, the demand side, this is where I think for a while there, there was a lot of concern that, that demand had been stymied for a while. And, and now we've seen a significant resurgence in demand really over the last year and a half. And I think the, the best way I, I demonstrate that is uh, with the concept, and you've probably heard this because it's become, I, I think, fairly commonplace to be discussed these days, this idea of excess savings. What that really means is how much income have households obtained above the long-term trend that, that they otherwise wouldn't have obtained? And then you compare that to their spending relative to trend, you know, how much spending they, they have or haven't done. And you could see when you look at the slide that for a lot of the last couple of years, that households have obtained above trend income, because largely because of government policy, but also because of uh, you know, labor shortages contributing and, and, and fueling wage growth in a way that we might not otherwise have seen. At the same time, because of the disruption to the economy, we've had a lot of below trend spending, or at least up until really last year. Now you could see in recent periods that, that income has actually been below trend and spending has been above trend. So what's the net of this? The net of this is that consumers are still sitting on excess savings of, you know, estimates vary, but call it 1.2 to $1.4 trillion of extra savings that they wouldn't have otherwise had. You add to that the wage growth that, that they're generating because of the strength in the labor market. And consumers have really, we have consumers have been out doing our jobs in the economy. We've been really pushing uh, the demand side of the economy. And that's important with US consumers still representing about 70% about of GDP. It, it's certainly important, but it is having an impact on inflation because we're, as I'll show you shortly, we're now starting to see more pressure coming through from the demand side than, than really more just the supply side. But one other thing is also happening that's important for inflation. We are, we are very slowly reverting 
back to norms that existed before the pandemic. Because what I mean by that is we're starting to see relatively more spending on services over time as people go out and about and live some semblance of, of pre-pandemic life again and relatively less spending on goods because they're, they're not spending as much time at, at home. They're not relying on e-commerce as much. And so it's, it's a slow reversion back to pre-pandemic levels, but that's certainly occurring. And that matters because services inflation tends to be stickier, I will call it, than goods inflation. And it's starting to go up, which means it's going to be a little more resilient. It, it's a little bit easier to manipulate. It's not perfectly easy, but it's a little bit easier to manipulate goods inflation than it is to manipulate services inflation. So that is something certainly that uh, the Fed and other powers that be are keeping an eye on. What does this practically mean? What it practically means is that you're starting to see greater balance between supply-driven inflation and demand-driven inflation. What I'm showing you on this slide is an econometric breakdown of inflation into components that are, are, are unambiguously demand-driven, that are unambiguously supply-driven, and then some components that are are just kind of ambiguous. They're, they're too well entangled to really disaggregate, but that's not, that's not really what matters. What matters is if you look over on the far right side of the slide, you could see that the supply-driven side has, it's a little hard to see, but it has come down a bit in recent periods while the demand-driven component has stayed elevated. So you're starting to see greater balance between demand and supply. I would expect, fingers crossed, uh, you know, if the trends continue, that you're going to see less of this coming through on the supply side and probably more of it coming through on the demand side, at least, at least in, the, in the short term as we, as we work our way through the balance of this year on into the early stages of, of next year. So that's sort of a quick update on how inflation has been changing throughout the course of the year. So that brings me to thinking about responses and, and the economic impacts associated with those responses. And the most important response is obviously from the Fed. Uh, the Fed has, has certainly been aggressive this year in, in raising rates. I will always be the first person to remind everyone there are really good reasons why the interest rate forecasters hall of fame is still completely vacant. As a consequence of that, I am going to throw the Fed under the bus and I'm going to show you their current forecast. I would expect this to change tomorrow when they meet and come out with, with uh, new guidance. But for now, not so much the, the numbers per se, but the shape of this, uh, I, I think the Fed is going to stay aggressive. I think I expect a 75 basis point increase uh, this week. Uh, I think then we will fairly quickly switch gears to thinking about what they do in December, whether it's 50 or 75 basis points, and then what they decide to do uh, in early 2023. But make no mistake about it. The Fed is is concerned about inflation becoming more durable, especially as it starts to see more of it coming through on the demand side. And they feel like they need to raise rates aggressively in order to tamp that down. That raises an interesting question. Can you actually see some signs of the Fed's policies already having an impact? And the answer to this is yes, certainly in some of the more interest rate sensitive parts of the economy. So let me show you spending overall first. Uh, this is overall retail spending, retail and food services, basically consumer spending in the U.S. Uh, I'm showing you on a, on a calendar year basis over the last 30 years or so. Uh, you can see that this year is another good year. It, it, it looks a little bit disappointing relative to last year, which was just a really anomalous year. Uh, but if you compare 
and, and admittedly, it's only a year to date figure. The year is clearly not, not over yet, uh, but we will probably end up in, in uh, our forecasted range. We thought we would end up in about seven to 9% for the year. So that even with a couple months left, it feels about right to me. And it will end up in the conversation of the strongest years that we've seen in the last 30 years, uh, along with 1994, 1999, uh, 2011, um, periods like that. But what's important to notice is that we have seen slowing in spending since the early stages of this year. It's, it can be somewhat volatile. So I'm not only showing you the spending on a month to month basis, but I also calculated the three month moving average just so you could see the trend over time. And, and you could see that spending on, on the part of consumers probably peaked in the early stages of this year and has been decelerating since under the weight of both higher inflation and higher interest rates. So clearly these, these factors are starting to have more of an impact on the consumer. I still think it will be a relatively robust holiday season, but um, clearly there is some slowing in the data that we've observed over the last, over the last few quarters as a consequence of, of both of those things weighing on consumers. One of the other areas where you start to see some of this is also in the labor market. And you see it both in terms of what I think are two very important metrics. Uh, the net job gain, which is, is basically just the number of net new jobs that's produced, uh, created every month, which is the black column. You could see similar to spending. It probably peaked sometime in the first quarter of this year and has been slowly decelerating since. Uh, I would expect that to continue even with some um, idiosyncratic variation in the data. I would still expect to see that deceleration over the balance of this year into the early stages of next year. That comports with what we're seeing in terms of open jobs, which is uh, the red line. Also probably peaked in the first quarter of this year and has been slowly decelerating since. Uh, they probably wouldn't say it, but the Fed likely takes this as a positive sign somewhat counterintuitively because they think uh, with the pronounced labor shortage that I'm sure you've all heard a lot about, that there's just too much demand for labor relative to the supply that exists. That's why we're seeing such strong wage increases. That's one of the reasons why we're starting to see that demand-driven inflation start to run up. The Fed knows there's not a lot they can do about supply-driven inflation, but they can certainly raise rates to try to tamp down demand-driven inflation. So they are probably viewing the slowdown in the labor market as a, again, somewhat counterintuitively, a positive indicator for uh, the outlook for really this year heading into next year. The other main area where you see it, uh, and, and again, I think the Fed is probably quietly happy about this, would be in the housing market, because that's an area where I'm sure you're all <laughs> more than well aware. The housing market has been on fire for the last couple of years as prices have really run up, as demand has exceeded supply. And that is also start to, starting to filter through into inflation in a, in a you know, more meaningful way. That services inflation that I was talking about, housing factors into inflation through services because it's, it's, it's really a, it's a service that's being provided to, to an extent. And so the Fed is certainly concerned about that. And again, you could see similarly, we probably saw existing home sales peak uh, first quarter this year. We finally in the summer of this year started to see pricing rolling over. Uh, so both sales and prices are starting to trend down. And again, it sounds a little bit I don't know, ridiculous to say that the Fed is rooting for this, but 
this is largely what they they had in mind by going out and raising rates that they are trying to take a lot of this excess demand out of the system and they're looking for some of these more 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 interest rate sensitive parts of the economy to be showing that i would say housing you know i showed it last among the three that i'm i'm uh, talking about today but maybe the most important from their point of view just because uh, it plays such an such an important role in the basket of goods and services that we actually use to calculate inflation. Um, housing uh, effectively is about I'm going around a little bit, but about 40% of inflation. Therefore, it it has a significant role to play in what happens to uh, current inflation, projected inflation. So I, I think the Fed is uh, very quietly happy about the fact that the housing market seems to be to be rolling over. What does that practically mean when we think about inflation? Uh, if you haven't seen this slide before, I call this my family feud slide because the top 11 answers are up on the board as to why inflation will peak and start to come down. I, I color coded it just to make it a little bit easier to think through. The first four in black are more demand side factors. The second four in red are more supply side factors. And you can see um, some of those are already occurring. We are definitely seeing supply chain improvement. We we're not out of the woods on uh, geopolitical or pandemic disruptions, but I think those are also abating over time. And then the last three that are in gray are more technical or mathematical factors. So of those 11, the one that I wanna focus on today is, is number 10, this idea that inflation is spiky. What I mean by that is when we look at inflation on a, on a calendar year basis, um, it tends to run up relatively quickly and then come down relatively quickly. Uh, so kind of mountainous, like a spike, it'll run up, um, not immediately, but then it will start to back off. It, it doesn't look like a plateau. It doesn't run up, stay elevated for a long period of time and then start to abate. That's not what you see when you look at the data, even back in the 1970s with uh, oil embargoes and, and geopolitical events. Uh, if you go look at the data on a calendar year basis, even back in the 1970s, you'll see something like this that runs up and starts to come down. Uh, and then you know, sort of the early 70s, 72, 73, and then before we get out of the woods in the, the late 70s, there's another geopolitical disturbance. It runs up again. Uh, and then finally in the 80s, it starts to come down. So when I look at this forecast, mine or anyone else's for that matter, and I see this sort of spiky shape to it where it runs up and then starts to come back down, that feels about right to me. And I, I, I don't get hung up on the specific forecast. In fact, you could see I use interval forecast as opposed to point forecast for inflation, just because it's such a thorny thing to predict, especially right now. But I'm really concerned about the shape of this curve. And so again, when I look at this, I think it looks about right. More meaningful deceleration and in inflation next year. And then I think in subsequent years, it continues to pull back a bit, but not obviously as much as uh, you would expect to see as we shift from 22 to 23, as some of these factors really start, uh, really start to take hold and inflation really, really starts to back off. So um, again, I, I could probably say the same thing about uh, inflation forecasters, as I said about interest rate forecasters, but I, I, I'm just concerned with getting the shape and the trajectory correct. And so I would say uh, most other objective forecasters probably have something that looks like this. I, I try not to check on them too frequently because I don't, I like forming my own independent assessments of things, but I would say the ones that I do talk to, pay attention to, look at, have a trajectory that, that looks relatively like this. What does that mean for the economy? Well, we've done something interesting in the economy this year. Uh, you probably saw that 
GDP technically contracted in the first half of the year. I'm using technical because I, I think there's a good chance that the data gets revised at some point. I have written fairly extensively about the issues that I have with the published data. Uh, I don't want to rehash all of that, but I just want to show you one other reason why I think there are issues with the data from the first half of the year. Uh, you could see that normally there's a positive relationship between GDP growth and industrial production in the economy. Uh, not always, but certainly over the last couple of years, that's been true. Uh, it's really strange that we're now getting this sort of negative correlation, this divergence between uh, what happened, uh, again, technically with GDP in the first half of the year and what's happened with industrial production. I think what that practically means is uh, it's probably overstating some of the weakness that we saw in the first half of the year, and it's probably overstating some of the strength that we saw uh, in the data in the third quarter. But but net net, what really matters is that economic growth is slowing. Um, but I think that the quarter to quarter data is is really serving as an unreliable narrator. It's not really painting a complete picture of what's going on. Uh, I think it's going to take us a, a few quarters to get away from from some of that data, uh, probably into next year. I think that will you know. And my, and again, my guess is that at some point um, the BEA goes back and revises some of that. But until then. I think it's a somewhat unreliable narrator, but ultimately what matters for us is that things are slowing down. And we knew that was going to be the case. There's, there was almost no way that we were going to be able to replicate uh, the breakneck pace of growth last year. Now, I will be honest and tell you that um, the pace of deceleration this year has caught a lot of people, including myself, by surprise. But there were factors that occurred this year that, that nobody would have predicted around this time last year, such as you know, Russia starting a major war in Europe for the first time since 1945. So I think what really practically matters for us is that we are decelerating, uh, and I would expect that to persist this year into next year. What it practically means for us in terms of whether or not we enter a recession, I think the jury is still very much out on that. My baseline has us slowing near what I call stall speed, basically zero GDP growth. Um, and there's probably a quarter or two in there in the base case where it might contract. Whether or not that constitutes a recession is very much an open-ended question, especially after the, again, the data from the first half of this year, because I would, and I think most economists would, would I think, pretty fiercely argue that was not a recession. Uh, GDP is a glorified accounting convention. It often gets asked to do things it was not intended to do. I think objectively, when you look across the rest of the economy, when you look at consumer spending, when you look at strength in the labor market, when you look at production, none of that signaled anything approximating a recession. So I think that back of the envelope definition of two consecutive quarters uh, might work as a good shorthand. But in terms of actually telling you something important about the economy, uh, not so much. So fingers crossed on this. I think we're slow. I think we're almost certainly slowing down. Uh, and I think there's a, there is a risk of a recession next year. It certainly shows up in, in my downside case, uh, but we're really going to have to see how aggressive the Fed is willing to get. I think, uh, I think today's meeting and the forecast associated with it will tell us a lot about that. Um, and I'm not, I'm not a Fed basher, but they're clearly in the driver's seat at this point. What, what is really going to happen over the next year or so, maybe even a little bit longer, uh, year or two, is really going to come down largely to Fed policy and how aggressive they're, they're really willing to get. 
and how quickly inflation starts to uh, abate over the coming quarters. Switching gears a little bit, just to talk about commercial real estate. Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to give it uh, the industry a shameless plug, but I do think uh, it has a lot of value in an environment like this, especially when you think about the two challenges that, that we confront, inflation and interest rates. So I'll, I'll talk about inflation first. Uh, there's, a, there's a very, I think, at least in the industry, well understood argument that real estate is an imperfect but good hedge against inflation. And that argument uh, has sort of, sort of, I don't want to say fallen out of favor, but hasn't been made as, as forcefully over the last couple of years. Um, and I think that's a mistake because even in the data that we've seen over the, the, the last decade or so, even with inflation running up this year into next year, uh, it still provides that uh, imperfect hedge. So what I'm showing you on the slide on an index basis is the national office rent that we track relative to the consumer price index. And you could see that uh, the national office rent has fairly consistently outperformed, again, even with CPI running up a little bit in recent periods. And that matters because for investors in the asset class, that if they take a longer term view, not just one or two years, which thankfully most of them do, they know that in most periods that they're going to have rent outgrowing inflation. And then even if there are one or two years where inflation might be running, I say might be because we haven't seen inflation this hot in a very long time, might be running hotter than, than rent growth, it tends to not last. And then after that, they're back to what I consider to be a more normal environment where rent grows faster than inflation does. So this argument uh, still, I think, is a, is a compelling one that I've been trying to get more people in our industry to make, certainly more forcefully, that there's still a good inflation hedging argument for commercial real estate, uh, even, in, even in the present day. Uh, and I think you know, maybe more people are aware of it now with inflation uh, having come roaring back over the last year or two. The other very important thing that, that commercial real estate does well is that it actually handles higher interest rates well. Uh, that's not to say that it doesn't come under pressure from rates. I want to be careful about that. Um, but it actually, it actually stomachs them well because there is a very imperfect correlation between uh, higher yields on properties and higher interest rates. It's certainly not a one-to-one -one translation. If you look at the chart over on the right side of the slide, often there's a negative correlation, meaning when interest rates are going up, yields on properties are coming down. And that's because they're not the same, they're just not the same thing. Uh, if you buy a bond, you know, some kind of you know, interest-bearing security, you're pretty much locked into that no matter what happens. But what, when you buy an asset, like a commercial real estate asset, there are more variables that impact the yield you get from a property than, um, than you would expect to see from something like a, like a treasury bond. Uh, the performance of, of the building itself matters a lot. And that's why even today, even with, I think, objectively transaction volumes slowing down, you are still seeing investors going out and purchasing certain assets because they take a longer, again, they take a longer term view that they look past the short term and they think, what does the market environment, the economic environment look like beyond just the short term? And they see an environment that looks palatable to them, that is certainly favorable, that they're willing to place capital. So I'm not saying there aren't short-term disruptions. I'm not saying that higher interest rates don't put pressure on, on valuations and yields in the commercial real estate space. I'm simply saying most investors, even if they're willing to take a beat and, and let the market settle down a little bit, 
usually are willing to peer beyond just a, a short-term horizon to the medium to long-term and make decisions about uh, purchasing and selling assets that way. Uh, switching gears one last time, risks and surprises. Uh, no shortage of them out there, but just wanted to highlight a few key ones. Keep an eye on China, not just in terms of their um, COVID policy, but thinking about their really some of their, their economic policies. They have a significant real estate bubble that they're dealing with. They've been cracking down on the technology sector. Real estate and technology represent about a third of China's economy. Therefore, I would say if, if, if those two industries are going to falter, uh, China's overall economy will probably run into some trouble, which could have some, even if minor global ramifications. Uh, center top, I mentioned it. We are dealing in a, a very pronounced labor shortage that is based on demographics, that is not, not based on just a short-term phenomenon. So it's going to stick with us for a while. Even if there is some alleviated pressure on that uh, over the next year or two with the Fed raising rates, over the medium term, demographics are going to dictate supply-demand dynam dynamics in the labor market. Uh, I would expect it to be a, a favorable market for workers for at least the next uh, decade or so. Center top, uh, sorry, center right, uh, we have an election in about a week, and then we have another important one about two years after that. I am not a political person at all, but I will simply say, if the last one was any sort of benchmark to go by, buckle your seats, it might get a little bit bumpy, and I will apolitically leave it at that. Uh, bottom left, you know, inflation continues to surprise on the upside, so just don't don't throw it off the radar screen. I think, you know, fingers crossed, but not holding my breath, we're probably past peak inflation at this point. Um, but, but there might still be some variation in the data on the way down. So don't be surprised if you happen to see that. Center bottom, there is only one person in the world who knows how the situation in Eastern Europe gets resolved. And I am not that person. So we are just going to have to see how that plays out uh, over time. And then lastly, uh, bottom right, you know, the pandemic is still a thing, as I've heard a lot of people say, we might be over the pandemic, but the pandemic is not over us. Um, at least from an economics point of view, it still has the ability to be disruptive. So just don't lose sight of that. I don't think it will be as disruptive clearly as we've seen the last couple of years, uh, but, but we're not out of the woods on that at all. All right, so what's the so what of this? What are the, what are the things that matter for us? The problem is that inflation remains high and stubborn, and even though it's likely to decelerate more meaningfully in the next 12 months, it's going to take some time for it to back off, and it's going to take, uh, almost certainly going to take some policy intervention if that's going to happen on what I think to the Fed is an acceptable time frame. Which brings me to the solution. Uh, higher interest rates are, also, are already starting to impact economic activity. I think the risk here and the risk in most uh, post-war recessions in the US is of overshooting on monetary policy, that the Fed gets too aggressive, that they go a little bit too far, that they restrain activity a little too much, and then we end up in a downturn. Um, again, no guarantees ever in economics. So I will just say the risk of a downturn is elevated, but I don't think it is a foregone conclusion. And then lastly, uh, you know, I think the future for for the economy overall, and certainly for commercial real estate, remains optimistic for whatever lies ahead. Uh, higher inflation, higher interest rates. Commercial real estate has acquitted itself over multiple business cycles, including periods like this in the 1980s when we had high inflation, periods in the 1990s when we had uh, rampant overbuilding, 
periods in the 2000s and, and 2010s when we had massive debt bubble, uh, and then even with some of the, the weirdness that we've been dealing with for the last few years. So I think no matter what lies on the other side of this, commercial real estate has uh, continued to prove um, its worth. And so uh, it's one of the reasons why I continue to work in this industry. Uh, it's not just because I get uh, a paycheck to do so. With that, I am going to shut up, but I'm happy to take any questions that I did not address during our enthralling presentation this morning. Listeners, can you feel it? It's that time of year again. ALC application season is back. ALC stands for Associate Leadership Council, and it's Trek's premier leadership development program. ALC class members come together for 10 monthly educational programs and lunches, network with our city's top business leaders and political figures, get personalized career training with an executive coaching firm, and implement a community investment project. In this relatively short time frame, participants gain a wealth of education, networking opportunities, and experiences that have a profound impact on their careers for years to come. We are making some changes to this year's program, though. Most notably, the candidates must now be between the ages of 30 and 40 to be eligible for consideration. In January, we'll host two open house events where you can network with fellow applicants, ALC alums, and members of the steering committee who will ultimately select the 2023 class. You can learn more about the ALC class of 2023 and apply now at recouncil.com backslash ALC. That's recouncil.com backslash ALC. Now, let's get back to the show. Awesome. Thank you, Ryan. Great, great info. Uh, we will open it up for questions. Discussion. I have a question, Ryan. Being in the office business, we like to see people in seats. And we like to see that growing. You mentioned demographic shifts in the labor market. Could you expand on that a little bit? Sure. So we're really entering a period where a lot of the baby boomers are exiting out of the workforce. Uh, not all of them. I don't. It's it's not uh, it's not a binary thing. But we're really starting to see uh, baby boomer exodus out of the workforce. So what it means is that the workforce growth rate is slowing down. Now I, I, that's not all doom and gloom for commercial real estate because a lot of, and certainly for office, because a lot of the growth in the economy, a lot of the growth in the labor market is still going to come through in, in terms of office using industries, um, technology, business and professional services, financial services. What, what I do, and, and, and I think you're, you're gradually seeing this return to office, people going back into physical spaces again, uh, even if the world looks different on the other side of this than it did, than it did before, uh, there will still be demand for space. I think what's likely to happen is that uh, the rift between kind of the, the have and have not properties will probably continue to widen out. And it, it just means that some properties will probably get uh, knocked down or converted into some other property type. But I don't see that as, this, uh, as, a, as a negative the way most people do. As an economist, I think of that as that the creative destruction process. Uh, but by no means do I think this is the the death knell for the office market. I think that is a narrative that has been uh, massively overhyped over the last couple of years. Great answer, by the way. I've got one question. Can you break down the different sectors of the real estate market? What do you see in the next year, two years? Yeah. Um, so I think in, most, in, in, yeah, I, I think most sectors will hold up well. There's certainly um, the, the apartment market. Yeah. How do you see the different categories, if you don't uh, mind? Okay. 
Yeah, so certainly I think the apartment market holds up well. Uh, there, there's some risk of a little bit of overbuilding at the top of the market, the real high-end class A, A-plus product, but it, it's a little more localized in certain markets. Most of the apartment market, I think, will hold up well. Uh, if you actually look, especially once you get below that real high-end threshold where everyone's building these days, if you look at the sort of B-plus and under market, uh, there's only been, to, to my recollection, having seen the data, one calendar year in the last 42 years where asking rent in, in that sort of BC part of the market actually declined. Uh, it's because demand keeps growing and supply keeps contracting. So outside of small pockets, I, I think the apartment market holds up well. I think the industrial market holds up well. I, it, it, sustaining the the amazing performance that we've seen over the last couple of years is going to be nigh impossible, the kinds of rent growth and, and vacancy change that we've seen. But you know, this is, uh, you know, we're not putting the genie back in the bottle. Even if e-commerce backs off a little bit, again, as we revert back to, to those pre-pandemic norms, uh, we're going to continue to spend money online. People are going to continue to be more comfortable with that. Uh, there will continue to be demand for, for space, not just on the part of e-commerce distributors, but a lot of the logistics firms that help uh, both bricks and mortar retailers and e-commerce retailers move their goods around. Uh, that is likely a feature, not a, not a bug as we move through this. And, and I think almost everybody's projections, including my own, see e-commerce sales becoming a larger, larger percentage of overall sales over time. Uh, in terms of the retail market, the retail market is always a very property specific market, not just because you have a lot of different subtypes, but because it really depends on very local factors. It's, it's probably the property type where it's, it's the most difficult to, uh, to really aggregate to a market level or even a submarket level. I would say, you know, there you have to really focus on the property type. And we've seen this, this bifurcation, this kind of barbell in the retail industry going back at least a decade, I would say probably longer, even to before the financial crisis, where you've seen very, uh, very defensive, very non-discretionary centers hold up well. And then at the very high end, the very discretionary, very high end centers have held up well. And it's been the middle of the market, I think, that has struggled. That will probably continue to be the case. But again, I would, I would caution about making generalities in this property type. I would say focus on the individual asset more than any other any other property type uh, will probably give you a better indication. And then lastly, of the major food groups, uh, the hotel market. I think the hotel market has done an incredible job of bouncing back, not just in terms of, of leisure travel, which most people expected, but I think even more quietly than that, business travel has, has come bouncing back, not just in meetings, but even uh, conferences. I think a lot of the same uh, social dynamics that, that have, have gotten people to get out and about traveling again on a, on a leisure personal basis have also gotten them out and about traveling again uh, on, a, on a more, more you know, business professional basis. So you know, hotels, if we do go through a downturn, you'll see that show up in the data. It, it is incredibly um, well correlated to the overall economy. But, but this idea that, that you know, we were going to stop traveling on the other side of this, I think while there are some things that, that happen over technology now that, that you know, might have occurred in person, that again, I, I think is a narrative that has been uh, overhyped and oversold. 
Hey, Ryan, this is Russell Ingram. Question for you. Um, in the commercial real estate sector, we're seeing a, you know, a real lack of liquidity from the debt market. There's still equity out there, but debt is, is harder to find, harder to obtain. How do you, how do you think about that for 2023 in terms of will, will we see more liquidity? And if we don't, how does that impact your assessment of economic activity? Uh, Trey can probably give you an even stronger opinion on this than I can, but I would simply say, um, I think in, from my point of view, I, I think the Fed is going to have to start backing off at some point next year. I think there's going to be a deceleration in the economy, whether or not there's a contraction. And I think the capital markets are going to have to start easing once they do that. I think you will find pioneering investors who will be willing to go out as they start to see the light uh, at, the, at the other end of the tunnel. Um, the timing, again, could be a little bit finicky depending upon the Fed, uh, but I think almost uh, unless the economy is just so much more resilient than anybody thinks, um, I think the Fed is probably going to have to start backing off uh, at some point next year. So, Trey, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think the epicenter of illiquidity is in the money center banks. We've, many on the call know that well, you know, the WAMP, the Bamels and the Wells Fargo's of the world. They have to get back in the market. Their balance sheets are in the process of resettling and balancing. I also agree the Fed is using that lever with the regulatory agencies to pull and restrict credit into the space. I think that's a demand diminisher. And I think they're going to look and recognize that's a bit of a dangerous tool to continue to use into another year because we're starting to already see backups there relative to workouts and maturity defaults and that kind of activity, which I don't think was the goal. So I agree with Ryan whether it's the Fed or the regulatory bodies, I think one or both, depends how, if you agree that they're conspiring, are, are going to let some more credit availability back in the market, most notably in the money center banks, because that's who they govern the most uh, with, with the higher degree of, of control. Um, and look, the liquidity exists in the credit space. There's an ample liquidity. It just is at a high price. And so we have a bid ask gap happening as well. I mean, if you want to borrow money at a higher yield than you wanted to borrow, we could find it for you. So there is liquidity. It's just not at the lower cost of capital. So I can give you numerous examples of that. So again, I think it does, it has to heal um, and become more prevalent into 23. Otherwise, we're going to be dealing with a whole other set of problems that I don't think anyone intended. And I think the Fed has an ability to help remedy that. But I don't have the perfect answer. I just believe it'll get, it'll get better. This is Lynn Dowdall. Had a question. Love, I would love a crystal ball reading on construction costs. We all know that um, lumber's come down, but what do you guys see? Is that going to follow the curve of inflation, or do you see a change? No, I, I I think you'll you'll if things go according to plan in terms of the economic trajectory, you'll almost certainly see construction costs backing off. I, if you look at the economic data, we're already seeing a pullback uh, in construction activity on both the commercial side and the residential side. It, it takes some time for that to, to filter through, but I think especially with some of the supply chain improvements that we've seen, uh, I, I, I don't have a, a detailed forecast off the top of my head, but all of the ones that I've, that I've seen show uh, construction inflation backing off uh, next year and thereafter. Hey. Let's test that though. We got some developers and no doubt GCs on the call. Has anyone actually seen construction costs moderate in activity that they're involved with? Nope. I mean, yeah, we just rebid a bunch of stuff and it didn't happen. 
Yeah, this is Eric Flat Lucy or up still? Is it moderating like flattening or is it still increasing? Eric, were you going to add? I was just going to say we're, we're not seeing the escalation that we were seeing earlier in the year, which was, you know, almost a percent a month. Um, steel prices are down. They're the lowest they've been in two years. Lumber prices are down. The problem that we're seeing here locally is there's so much uh, data center work, heavy mechanical, electrical, plumbing type activity going on that those trades, uh, you continue to not only have labor shortages, but uh, material shortages as well. So yeah, I, it, I, 2023 is certainly not going to be the increase that we saw in 2022. It was unprecedented, uh, but I don't see them going down much uh, in, the, in the coming six months or so. Yeah, the you know, I think that's yeah. an important distinction too between deceleration and deflation. Um, I'm not saying you're going to see a collapse in construction input prices, just that you should see a deceleration in inflation similar to what, because that's what I would say about, about prices in general. I don't think there's going to be a collapse in, in prices from you know, outside of a few things. Uh, broadly, I would, I'm not expecting prices to, to really decline, just the growth in prices to decelerate. Great, thank you. The only thing I might add to that is um, if you spot buy at the moment, we've seen as uh, Eric or Lynn said, there's some prices that are down, but if I'm signing a contract to build a building that's a two year, the GCs aren't lowering their prices or, or the subs actually, because it's really coming from the subcontractors, because they have to hedge against the spike when they get their actual call for that product in the future. So to get the guarantees in place now, we're not seeing the decreases now, and we might not see that until it's a more sustained decrease to actually have the decrease matriculate all the way through the system to the client. So spot buy, yes, for, but if you're making a big buy on a big contract over to your project, uh, hasn't worked that way yet. Eric, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think you're both spot on. You're, we're not going to see de deflation. And uh, yeah, it's it's still just tough to predict. You know, a lot of these projects that are out there, they're two, three, sometimes three and a half year projects. And the subs who are notoriously bad at predicting the future uh, just aren't going to do that. I, I know commercial construction is just one component. You have public spending, you have residential, which I think there's data on that as well. I can tell you that commercial construction is nearing a point where it is, in, in, by our data, going to fall off a cliff because a lot of the economic development in that space is being challenged economically, whether it's increasing construction costs, the yield requirements are changing. I mean, I can tell you from our own data, we control a lot of multifamily and industrial development type of work. And a meaningful percentage of that is on pause or on hold right now. This is stuff that no doubt is on GC and subs pipelines that they think is coming that will not come. So, you know, again, I don't know when that turns, but I can just tell you that, I mean, it's not a small, it's not 10 or 15% offline. It would be a significant portion of the pipeline and we're a proxy. So I'm not sure how everyone else is feeling it, but I, you know, we're not a bad gauge for that in terms of our firm nationally. So I've, I, it's coming in terms of slowdown of commercial construction, undoubtedly. And I don't know how that doesn't have some effect into the subs and GC's ability to continue the impact pricing. I, 
at least, but maybe it just hasn't happened yet. I haven't flowed through it. No, I mean, you know, if you, for those of you remember, and most of us do, 2000, 2008, when things really slowed down dramatically, I mean, we had subs 60 days before the big turn saying we're booked up. We can't take work for the next two or three years. And 90 days later, they're in our office going, I'm desperate. I'm going to have to let people go. So that's what I'm saying. Subs are notoriously bad at predicting the future. And when we talk to some of these subs, when we have projects like Meadow and others that are actually going, we say, and they say, well, we can't get to it. And we ask, well, what's your pipeline? Why can't you get to it? And a lot of it is stuff that, in my personal opinion, is not going to come forward uh, just because of the increase in, in interest rates, et cetera. So, yeah, it's, you know, it, they're filled up today and we may have a CEO call in two months and everybody's going, oh, my God, we just we'll take anything we can find. Be an interesting one to put that on the notes, Ken and, and Linda. Let's ask that question in two months and see who's right. <clears throat> well, I know who. I know who ahead, I want to be right. <laughs> we right. all know who. Yeah, we 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 want to put all of our chips down on the positive side for sure. But good answer, and thank you so much. Well, another proxy we see are the engineering firms. We have a, a large number of engineering firms at Hall Park, and they're all of them are expanding. And it's you know that's not necessarily tied to commercial. That's tied to infrastructure. That's tied to five G. It's tied to a lot of other things. You know, what a question. Well, Ryan, you know, we talk a lot. Everyone's focused on rates at the moment. Everyone's focused on the pace of change, which obviously is highly disruptive for commercial real estate right now. I think it has what's maybe perhaps more important is what people think rates will do in the future, whether they remain elevated for longer or when when perhaps we might see some relief from an interest rate perspective. I'm talking about both the short side on the SOFA and on the long bond because. That obviously has a lot of impact to the industry. Uh, Robert Kaplan, we were fortunate enough to hear him come speak to my ULI council last week, and he was walking through just basic economics. And he said, nominal GDP in this country just cannot sustain itself more than one and a quarter, one and three quarter to 2% because of just demographics. I mean, it's a combination right. of wage, you know, new, new, new employers in, in the country plus productivity, and that just isn't gonna be more than 2%. So over the moderate to long haul, Rates can't stay elevated. He predicting right. a sluggish growth in the economy over the next decade or two because of that. So how do we reconcile that? And what does that mean for the next maybe two to five years? Yeah, there, there is no way that rates can stay at elevated levels. We're just not that economy anymore. He's exactly right. Like a, on, a, on a prolonged basis, the, the potential growth rate, the long run growth rate in the economy is about 2%. You can, you can go above that a little bit. You can go, go below that a little bit. But you, you, we're kind of anchored to that 2% based on demographics and productivity growth. So th there, there's just no way that we could sustain uh, at the short end, at the long end, 4 to 5% on a sustained basis without, without having serious impacts on the economy. Um, I think what the world looks like on the, in the medium to long term is probably maybe with a little bit more inflation, but something that it's looked like over the last decade. Because if you look at the last decade, Economic growth was in that one and a half to two percent range for the most part. Commercial real estate still performed well. The economy still generally performed well. By the by, the end of the decade, the the labor market was incredibly tight as that demographic change really started to to bite a little bit harder. Uh, but I think that's that's who we are now. We're we're a more mature, slower growth 
economy than we were 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. But the, the, the important caveat to that is because the economy is so much bigger, we don't need as much growth to generate a lot of activity, right? It's like the law of, of large numbers. And so 2% on a $24, $25 trillion economy uh, is a lot of economic activity relative to a higher growth rate from a lower base. And I think that's often what gets lost in that conversation. People just focus on the growth rate and they think like, oh, everybody, everything's going to be miserable, but there's still a lot of economic activity that comes through because of that. The other thing I would say is, you know, with, you know, demographic growth slowing down, you know, population growth, things like that. Um, GDP per capita, which is a measure of, of well-being, everyone's well-being, should probably stay in a pretty good place because some of that slowdown is associated with the population slowdown. So it's not as if we're having this collapse in economic growth and the population is still growing at the same rate. That would probably mean, you know, everyone's individual standard of living would be altered. That I don't think is, is in the cards for us. So this is Lucy. Uh, Go ahead, Lucy. Um, so how many of us are willing to start new projects when they make no financial sense? Uh, Lucy, Thanks. only the office yeah. developers will do that. Well, yeah, I know, and, and apartments. Well, obviously it's a trick question. Do they make no financial sense in the moment? Yeah. Right, right, yeah. relative yeah. to, I mean, if we assume that the entire real estate industry yields are gonna to reset to today's cost of capital, because that's essentially what the industry is trying yeah. to reconcile right now. And, and I, Ryan made a comment earlier about the, the lack of direct correlation between interest rates and cap rates. But I also believe, we, and that's why I asked the previous question, I think we're a moment in time situation where we're, we are facing elevated cost of capital and it is absolutely affecting the valuation and viability of commercial real estate projects. The question is how long, right? So the question is, is that gonna be the case for 12 months or 12 years? And, and there's a lot of really smart people today trying to figure that out. So you know, where people are deploying today, institutional capital really wants to deploy. And by the way, there is liquidity in commercial real estate. It's not short at all. It just wants what you don't, most folks don't have. So it's deploying in credit, in the credit markets, because there's a lot of ARB in that market right now, because it elevated spreads and cost of uh, underlying indexes. So equity participants in real estate are actually buying credit en masse in the billions right now, because they're able to get eight, nine, 10, 11% yields, in some cases unlevered. And they're playing in the public markets because the public markets have forecasts at much higher rate index than what we're showing in the private space. So, you know, we're we're losing a little bit of equity capital base in our space right now, mm -hmm. private secured real estate to those other alternatives. But that's like any other time in history; those things move around. So, you know, it's, it's a tough question. I mean, Lucy, you're right. That's why I made the earlier comment. Our development pipelines currently, when we're raised, when I say that, that means we're yeah. raising either construction financing or joint venture equity. They're compromised today because they were underwritten at a yield that doesn't make sense today from a return on cost perspective. So all that starts to sit still, and that actually is going to create a supply, lack of supply issue, in my opinion, in the next 24 months across some of these property types. Somebody's going to try to make some of those work and get them delivered. And my guess is they win relative to the demand. Well, you know, we're going to be doing a couple of things, but the problem is, you know, we're going to be swallowing how much pain, um, you know, and for how long. Uh, so what did that happen to our total cost structure? And will, you know, 
we really get bailed out by rental rates and you can't count on that. Um, so um, the demand will be there. So you don't worry about demand. That's not the problem. Uh, and an office, I don't even worry about what people will pay, but on multifamily, I do. Yeah. It's exciting. It's a good question. It's what everyone's being challenged with right now. Well, Craig looks sort of serious there. <laughs> Craig, come on. You, Craig jumps off the high board and then says, is there any water down there? <laughs> All right, I'll uh, I'll ask uh, Ryan a question, uh, which I have an opinion on, or I'll I'll, I'll put my opinion out and then uh, let you uh, respond to it. If you look at the chart you showed earlier, Ryan, about different periods of time and amounts of increase, uh, you could say, well, we're not super unusual. We're four percent so far, going up maybe four and a half, five percent, maybe five and a half percent. But in my uh, old age of uh, doing this for 54 or five years now, I can't remember a single time in your chart or otherwise that from a low base went up the percentage amount this has gone up as fast as it has. And in my view, we're an accident waiting to happen in the overall economy. And um, that's not necessarily bad for commercial real estate because it could mean that the, I, I, don't, I don't see a soft landing, I see a hard landing and I see accidents waiting to happen. I see the strong dollar causing international problems. I just, I, I, I think we're, the conversation's a little more positive than I am. Uh, uh, you know, I just think we have a lot to worry about. And I, I've never seen anything where the Fed has been so fast. And uh, I think the faster they are, that may turn out to be good for us because it may mean they'll come down faster. I don't know, but. I, I, I share your concerns. One of my concerns is that there's a well-known timing lag between when when they raise rates and what it actually impacts activity and my concern is that they're not giving they're, they're they're sort of ignoring that a bit they just look at the inflation data and say up oh, it's still elevated another 75 basis points ignoring you know those few slides that i showed where we're already seeing slowdown in economic activity so i'm not saying that they shouldn't be raising i'm not saying that they shouldn't try to sort of tamp some of that down I'm just a little bit concerned that that they are going so so hard so fast, um, and that it increases the probability that they could overshoot and cause a problem. I certainly agree with all of that. Never dull. Ryan, when are all the desks going to be filled behind you? <laughs> That's a good question. I guess it depends on uh, how quickly JLL wants to change the graphic. Right. That's great. Any other questions? We're coming up on the hour. No? Well, Ryan, thank you. Uh, appreciate your time very much. That's all for today's show. I'd like to thank Ryan Severino of JLL for his insights on inflation and the high interest rates whose impact is definitely being felt around the commercial real estate industry. I'd also like to thank the executives that joined the call and participated in the discussion. Remember to subscribe to the show and follow us on social media for the latest from around the Real Estate Council and head on over to our website to apply for the ALC Class of 2023. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.